Welcome to the Hope Revolution messages. You'll be able to find our sermon podcast at hoperevolution.church forward slash sermon, as well as all other podcast players. We hope you enjoy this message. We've been doing a series on the book of Acts, and Tanya last week shared the overview of, of Paul's journeys. And today I'm not looking at a specific passage, but I'm looking at something that over Paul's journeys in the book of Acts, as you read it, this just stood out to me. I read the second half of Acts three or four times and, and, and this theme just jumped out. I really believe God wants us to understand an idea today that Paul lived and he lived with conviction. And I want to ask you a question. The question is, who is my enemy? Who is your enemy? Now, for a lot of us in a country that's safe, that we don't have any war in the country, we don't have major oppression for people in this country, we don't have a class system in this country, There's, we, we, do, we do pretty well. And so you might say to yourself, well, I wouldn't say I have any enemies. And I think that's a fairly norm, normal thing. There, there may be some people that are experiencing circumstances that they might think are, are their enemies. But if I reframe the question to who do I blame for the challenges in my life, we all of a sudden can probably think of people. I had a number of people share with me their frustration with Dan Andrews during lockdowns. Um, there's a number of people that will share frustration with their bosses and the challenges that their bosses create in their life. There's people who have shared with me the frustration with their spouse and the challenges. I am not looking at anybody in this room, um, but the frustration of their spouse can be the blame for the challenges in my life. And when we frame it in this way, it becomes a little bit more real to us. And there probably is some people that you've had challenges that you can think of that you would say are responsible for those challenges. People that have caused hurt, people that have caused frustration, people that have, that have prevented you from doing what you've wanted to do. People that you maybe are angry about what they've chosen to do. You see, we have a very Hollywood mindset of how we look at life. And I don't think Hollywood created it. I think it was already there and Hollywood has jumped onto it. And it's the, the mindset of goodies and baddies. Goodies and cops and robbers, cowboys and Indians, Russians versus America, Arabs versus America, Asians versus America, Aliens versus America. You get the picture. If there's something wrong, then we've got to blame someone. If there's something wrong, we want to know who is to blame. I had a client back when I was working in the multimedia world. I'm going to call him Steve for the exercise because that was his name. Steve was a guy that had a, his dad owned a tech company 
and he sold it for a lot of money and Steve was brought up in a lot of wealth and Steve got what Steve wanted to get. And so as a client, Steve was very, very annoying because if the price was too high and Steve didn't like it, he threw a tantrum and he let you know. And when you have someone, a client that's paying the bills, it caused a lot of stress for my boss because you don't want someone to walk away and take their money with them because they're paying for work. And it was a long-term relationship that had been going on many years and I would say it was quite abusive. And at times, I really hated Steve. I could see the stress he caused my boss. I could see the stress he caused me. And this was, this was something that was, for 13 years of my IT career space, this guy, Steve, was part of the picture. In fact, it goes a little deeper than that because my boss actually worked out of Steve's office. He ran his, his studio outside of Steve's larger office. And when Andy, my boss, employed me, Steve said, I don't know this person, you're going to have to leave. And so to employ me, my boss had to leave and find a new office space. This is how self-absorbed Steve was. There was one day that we made a mistake. We didn't often make mistakes. We were very meticulous as a, as a studio. But we launched something and we misunderstood the instructions and we launched it at the wrong time. Obviously, Steve was ropeable. He was not impressed and he came over to our office and he didn't just want to know what the solution was because we'd already solved the problem. We'd reversed what we'd done. We'd fixed it up because there had been a phone call. But he walked into the office and there was a phrase that we used ever since then that I still use to this day. Steve shouting at the top of his voice, who pushed the button? I want to know who pushed the button. And in our studio, we knew who pushed the button. We knew who actually made it live, but it was irrelevant. They were following instructions. It wasn't their fault. They actually weren't to blame. But Steve didn't care, and he kept saying, who pushed the button? Now, I'm proud to say my boss and I managed the studio never answered that question. He never found out who pushed the button. But that desire, that yearning to want to know who to blame is actually built into us. We really want to know who we can blame for what's, what went wrong. Often we want to blame someone to take the pressure off us and to save us and to, to get us out of the pickle. If we can find out who it is, then maybe we can resolve the issue. King David had a little bit of that in him. He got stuck and he wanted to get out of his problems. Now, he, got, he was in some pretty sticky situations. You can think about being stuck in caves, being hunted down. Listen to Psalm 35. This is his solution. O Lord, oppose those who oppose me. Fight those who fight against me. Put on your armor and take up your shield. Prepare for battle and come to my aid. Lift up your spear and javelin against those who pursue me. 
Let me hear you say, I will give you victory. Bring shame and disgrace on those trying to kill me. Turn them back and humiliate those who want to harm me. Blow them away like chaff in the wind, a wind sent by the angel of the Lord. Make their path dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. I did them no wrong, but they laid a trap for me. I did them no wrong, but they dug a pit to catch me. So let sudden ruin come, up, come upon them. Let them be caught up, according the trap they set for me. Let them be destroyed in the pit they dug for me. This is King David. Like us, he wants relief from his challenges, and this is his cry to God. Now, we've got to put some context to this, because that was before Jesus. That was from an era where there was a chosen people set apart for God, and they reflected him on earth. And what you see is what you get. So them opposing him is them opposing God. He has no saviour apart from God. It's a different context because when Jesus comes, his approach is very, very different to King David's. What did Jesus get accused of? Things he didn't do. They attempted to kill him six times before they succeeded. The people that said they represented God hated him, the son of God. And yet Psalm 35 was nowhere on his lips, nowhere in his heart, nowhere in his perspective. Very different to King David. Jesus' approach was radical, was completely the opposite of what we would have expected. And Paul reflects this as well. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how Paul slipped up and made a few mistakes. Putting those aside, the way he operated before he met Jesus and the way he operated after he met Jesus was very, very different. Can anyone remember what Paul was doing before he, he uh, met Jesus on the road to Damascus? Hunting Christians. What was his desire when he hunted them? Eradicate them. He didn't care. Prison, death, whatever. They were the enemy. And he wanted them eradicated. Gone. And he was passionate about it. From that day when he met Jesus, his thinking completely changed. This is what he says to the church at Ephesus. In Ephesians 6, 11 to 12, it says, Put on God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, 
but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. What was he doing before he met Jesus? Flesh and blood enemies. He had a hunt for flesh and blood enemies. And now his advice to the church at Ephesus is, we are not fighting against flesh and blood anymore. They are not our enemy. That is not where the fight is. Now, I personally don't like emphasising or spending too much time thinking or talking about Satan. Um, He gets too much credit a lot of the time. But Scripture does talk about him and talks about his ways, his strategies. And I just want to step through very briefly the strategies of the devil, just to contrast it to Paul's strategies and Jesus' strategies. So if you want to jump through, Daniel. Satan is a liar. Scripture says he is the father of lies and the deceiver. So in other words, his strategy is to trick people, to deceive them. He's a thief. His aim is to steal and to hinder. He's a murderer. His desire is to kill and devour. He's the accuser. Now his accusations are to God about the things the church and believers have done wrong. Why would you do that? Because you oppose mercy, grace and forgiveness, right? You keep accusing people of something, they may have actually done it, but you accuse them to oppose forgiveness and mercy. He is the tempter. He wants to encourage sin. And lastly, he is evil because he opposes good and he is the enemy to righteousness. Now the reason I want to mention these things is because this is our enemy. Right? This is what we fight against. When we have battles in our lives, when we have challenges that we can't get through, this is actually what's behind it. And what you can see is this is the opposite to Jesus and what Paul reflects. Where Satan is a liar, Jesus is the truth. Where Satan steals, Jesus gives generous gifts that aren't even deserved. Instead of murdering, there is abundant fullness of life from Jesus. Mercy, grace and forgiveness When there is a temptation of sin, Jesus says, no, I'll give you strength, power, the Holy Spirit. And where there is evil, Jesus leads into all righteousness. Can you see the massive contrast? This all of a sudden changes the way we look at other people. This changes the way Paul looks at other people. As we've been looking through Paul's journeys, can anyone remember what he does, how he interacts with non-believers? Anyone remember, even from last week? How does Paul interact with non-believers? He goes into a town, 
He's in Crete. He's in Ephesus. He's in Thessalonica. The first thing he does, he goes to the temple to share the good news. Truth. To anyone that doesn't know the good news of the gospel of Jesus, he wants to share truth with them. Some people believe, some people don't believe. Those that believe, what does he do? Encourages them. Yeah. Those who believe, he encourages them. Those that don't believe, are they his enemy? There is no evidence that they become his enemy. Does he become their enemy? Sometimes, right? There's people that came from from earlier towns that hated him, that followed him to try to discourage Jews from believing. But what did he do to them? What was his response to them? He still tried to explain as best they allowed him to. He still wanted to explain to them the truth, the good news. And when they tried to kill him, he moved on. He went to the next town. But what you see also is a pattern of him returning to those towns where they tried to kill him. He returns to encourage the believers again. What about Jewish authority, the Jewish leaders? He always showed respect and honor to the Jewish leaders. There was one time he said something to someone that was a little bit offensive and they said, hang on, you can't say that to the high priest. And he said, oh, I didn't realize they were the high priest. You're right, scripture says I shouldn't have said that. He corrects himself and says, no, 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 they deserve honor because they're in a position of authority in the synagogue. What about Roman authorities? How did he treat them? Also with respect. He's in front of Festus being charged and Festus says to him in uh, Acts 25, Festus says to him, look, why?" because he wants to appease the Jews, why don't we go back to Jerusalem and try you there? And he says, no, 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 no. I'm a Roman citizen. I need to be tried under the Roman rules. That's the fair thing. If you believe I've done something to deserve death, then I will die, right? He lets go of even the right to decide whether he lives or dies. And he says to Festus, if you think I've done the wrong thing, you have the authority to execute me and I will accept that conclusion. That's pretty mind-blowing. Knowing that he hasn't done anything wrong, but respecting the authority of Festus enough to say, that's your job and I will honour your decision. Now he knows he hasn't done anything wrong and in that scenario ends up appealing to Caesar and Festus says, yep, looks like we're going to Rome. What does this picture mean for us today? I think back to my 
client Steve. And I think of a guy that desperately wants to run his business and be successful, to make money, to achieve what he wants to achieve. And yet his approach is an approach that's warped, that's distorted. I actually think Steve was doing what he was doing because he thought that was the best way through. That was the best way out. And the best way out, other people were kind of meaningless in the picture. Steve was deceived. Steve was tricked into thinking that the way you get things in life is by throwing tantrums. That when you know who to blame, you can rip them into shreds and get them out of the way. If our enemies, if those that create challenges in our lives, if, if, the, if the people that we see as being problematic are no longer our enemies, we actually get a very fresh perspective like Paul of how to look at people and how to look at problems. And this is what I want us to understand today. That I don't believe there is any person that they are the source of the en being the enemy, if that makes sense. They have been fed something to make them believe the choices that they're making. Does that mean people have never hurt me? Of course not. Does that mean people have never hurt you? Of course not. We all have done stupid things. And we can all put our hands up and say, I've done something that's been hurtful. But when it's you or I, we can explain why we did that. We can explain the misinformation, the deception, the, the distorted view we had when we made that choice. We might have regretted it straight away. As soon as we did, we're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. But in that moment, we thought that was the way out, that was the solution. I think there's really something powerful that we can imitate Christ, imitate Paul as he imitates Christ, in looking at people a different way. At looking at people with the lens of mercy and compassion and forgiveness that says, if they do something to hurt me, if they do something to anger me, if they do something to frustrate me, it's because the enemy further up the chain, somewhere along the lines, has tricked them into thinking this is a good solution. That is where the source of the problem is. They are a puppet. They are an instrument of pain that they are not aware of the real cause. I can think back to times where Tanya's frustrated me. 
And there can be little niggling things that are really annoying. And they get bigger and bigger in your head. And then you talk about them and realise it actually was just a misunderstanding. Tanya had one idea, I had another idea, and we just hadn't talked about how those things fitted together. And so we ended up both letting it fester, both getting frustrated at each other, but both because we were actually both deceived. We didn't have the whole picture. And you go, wow, I'm really sorry, I assumed this and you assumed that. And at the end of the day, the brokenness is resolved because we had clarity of the truth. We had clarity of understanding. Now that's in a scenario where we both want to work on it. Sometimes you don't get that opportunity. Sometimes, like Steve, I never had the opportunity to say, hey buddy, we're not your enemy. We're trying to do the best we can to service you. We actually really care about you as a client. And I think there's a better way to go to do this. I never had that opportunity because Steve didn't want to have that conversation. But that doesn't mean that the way I look at Steve should be the way I did look at Steve. I despise Steve. And there was a bondage in me that fed brokenness, that fed separation, that fed anger, frustration. It fueled all those things because I hated Steve. I want you to think for a second about those that might be problematic in your world. Let's get real for a second. You don't have to share with me, but I want you to think about those that are problematic in your world. Now, you can't read their minds. You can't know what they're thinking. But you can imagine, because we've all been there, what it's like to have half-truth, to be deceived, to feel ripped off, to feel cheated, to not know the love and the grace of a creator who has lavished good things on us. If you think about them for just a second, I suspect and I hope that you will see that they are in some way lost and broken. They have pain and they too are looking for ways to find a way out for their challenges. Often without hope, often scrambling without an answer. Paul was phenomenal in his interaction with almost everybody. He saw the possibility of the truth, of generosity, of forgiveness and mercy, of abundant life. He saw the possibility of that for every single person he interacted with. Because 
Because then they're no longer an enemy. They're an opportunity. Imagine if Steve could know the love of his heavenly father. Imagine if those in your circumstance, they just look, look and feel in your experiences that they're so against something you care about. Imagine if they could get freedom from being trapped in that place. This is why we have the gospel. Because there's hurting broken people who desperately need to know the love of Jesus in their life. I think we have a radical opportunity to reflect something different. You might think I'm against scripture, but I don't think David's heart in that moment is God's desire for us as people who know Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. David didn't have that opportunity and that possibility. But I think for us, knowing being, being anchored in Christ means we look at people differently. And Paul looked at people differently. And that means we actually have no flesh and blood enemies. We only have the possibility and the opportunity for Jesus to transform people's hearts and lives, to be witnesses to the most broken, hurting people because that was what Jesus wanted. And that is what he died for. Let's pray. Lord God, you are such a merciful, gracious and forgiving God to us. As we sit here, Lord God, we know we are far from perfect. We know there are things in our lives that don't reflect you, haven't reflected you in the past. And yet you are so eager to restore right relationship with you. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity and the possibility that you gave us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was in our brokenness that you reached out to us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us a new, fresh perspective of every single person that, that we interact with, Lord. Lord, I pray especially for those ones that, that have caused us pain, that have caused us hurt, caused us anger, frustration. Lord, I pray you would, you would stir in us a new spirit, Lord God. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring a fresh revelation, a fresh understanding of how you see these people. Not as perfect, Lord, but people that desperately need the love and the saving of Jesus in their life. Lord, I pray you would bring a heart of compassion. Lord God, I pray you would bring a, a heart of grace. 
Lord, I pray that the abundant life that you've given us would be something that we reflect and project and desire for every single person that we interact with. Lord, I thank you for the witness of Paul who went from having very clear enemies to having no enemies. Lord, I pray for the culture of this church that you would establish a culture of hope, a culture of love, a culture of mercy, a culture of redemption, a culture of second chances. Because that is your heart for mankind. Lord, I especially pray for the individual circumstances that you brought to people's attention right now, Lord God. Lord, I just pray that you would bring a love for those names, Lord God, for those people that each one has not felt before. A supernatural love that goes beyond understanding, Lord. Just pray that you would bring something fresh into each one's mind. to think and respond as you would, Jesus, to those circumstances. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen. Now there is some homework. If there was a name that came to mind, or a list, could be a list, could be one name, could be many, I don't expect outside of the Holy Spirit to you all of a sudden to flick a switch and go, I love those people. I don't think it's in our human capacity to do that. And yet this here, the tempter line, I do believe you are equipped with what you need to change that perspective. But you need to participate with the Holy Spirit in that. In your own strength, you will fail. With the power of the Holy Spirit, you will succeed. That requires effort, prayer, listening, responding in obedience. The partnership with the Holy Spirit is something you need to participate in. So if you're sitting here going, I can think of some names, but my hate for them still remains. That's okay. That's where you're starting from. But I would encourage you to pray every day this week. Change my heart, Lord. Don't just stop there, then listen. What does a changed heart look like, Lord? What do I need to shift? And I just really encourage you to, to that partnership with the Holy Spirit of saying, what do I need to do to shift to be where you want me to be in my heart? And my experience is he is not slow at bringing that to mind. There's some things I believe we often are waiting a long time for God to do. I don't think when you have a desire to shift your heart posture, God is slow at all. My experience is he's very quick to come and help you 
and support you in that place of wanting to change your heart. So, um, so that's your homework. If there's, if there's names that came to mind, um, to pray for them this week and to pray for God to speak to your heart and to, to coach you this week in how to respond to them and, uh, and yeah, how to love them the way Jesus does. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions or feedback, please email us at hello at hoperevolution.church.